Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up on this edition, you'll be hearing from Chris and Katie Orr, who discussed with me the importance of Christians studying God's Word on their own and introduced their latest Focused 15 study on the book of Jonah. Then from Crystal Peaks Youth Ranch, it's Kim Meter with comments relative to seeing expressions of God's presence through our lives. Also discussing the film I Can Only Imagine, now available on home video, it's filmmaker Andy Irwin, highlighting some of the elements of the story that focuses on the reconciliation of father and son. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, Tina Marie Griffin has a significant background in the entertainment industry, and she's now known as the counterculture mom bringing to light cultural trends and empowering parents to respond biblically. Also, some challenging words from Meg Miller, who discusses how pornography impacted her marriage and offers Christ-centered solutions for dealing with the issue. Plus, inside an analysis from Travis Weber of the Family Research Council about the recent Supreme Court ruling in favor of a cake baker who declined to provide a cake celebrating a same-sex union. Finally, Rachel Linden is a novelist who's also involved in fighting human trafficking. Her latest book follows the stories of twin sisters estranged from one another trying to rebuild their relationship and who have faced difficult challenges in their lives. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Chris Orr is a pastor. His wife Katie is a Bible teacher. Together they have crafted two focused 15 Bible studies, the latest of which is called Jonah, Experience God's Patience, Embrace His Presence, Enjoy Divine Provision. The Focused 15 method is based around a a 15-minute-a-day period and leads to readers in a variety of approaches to Scripture passages. Here now are Katie and Chris Orr. I don't know if it's different for men, but women are um, very—and there's generational differences, too, uh, I will say. But there's a lot of of people that just feel like, well, that might just be the pastor's job to understand this really well. And I'm going to do my part to faithfully show up and listen to it. And that's going to be enough. And that's obviously a huge part of our Christian life is to be part of a local church and to listen and sit under the preaching of these godly men that know what they're talking about, right? You know, he's gifted them to teach us, but he's also given the command for each of us to rightly divide the word of truth, right? For each of us to be able to go to the Bible and understand it on our own. And I would say a high percentage of women feel like they're just not smart enough, they're not educated enough, or it's just not something that they will ever be able to do. They're just not that type of person. I hear that all the time. Chris, tell me just a bit about what the two of you wanted to bring to this book of the Bible, or maybe better said what you would want the book of the Bible to bring to those who would read the study. Well, one of the things that's, I think, most notorious about Jonah is that it's a very it's a very famous Bible story. And so even people that didn't grow up in church, they could probably sketch out for you some of the basics of the story. And people that did grow up in church and did grow up going to things like Sunday school and uh, vacation Bible school, you know, it's a, it's a very familiar story. And one of the things I think is unfortunate about uh, familiarity um, is that we we've kind of feel like been there, done that, and, and we don't really ever go back to dig and see if there's anything else under the surface. And the cool thing about Jonah, this, the uh, the book of the Bible, 
is that there's so much there under the surface, pun intended. Um, and so as you <laughs> as you really dig into the nice. to the to the book, you understand that uh, that wow, just the idea that you know here's a prophet who ran from God and you know got swallowed by a fish and got spit out on dry land. Uh, you know, there there's so much more to the to the story than than just that basic synopsis that most of us have in our mind. And so what we hope to bring with this study was kind of a fresh take, or a fresh look, I should say, on a very familiar story. Um, and hopefully what people come away with when they when they go through this study is just a, a, a renewed sense of amazement at how deep the Word is and how much there is to learn, even in a very familiar story. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and when we go back to the method and thinking about those glasses with Jonah, so often a lot of the Old Testament stories, we read them with the glasses on of, okay, what did Jonah do, and how can I do that too, or how can I not do that? Which is a very uh, appropriate pair of glasses to 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 read it, but we miss the what's true about God here. What what do we learn about God in the Book of Jonah? And there is so much there, and we really focus on that a lot and teach you how to look at what do the actions of God teach us about His character. Chris and Katie Orr here on the intersection. Learn more at katieor.me. Next up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Kim Meter, co-founder of Crystal Peaks Youth Ranch in Oregon. In our recent conversation, she discussed principles and stories that are part of her book, Encountering Our Wild God, Ways to Experience His Untamable Presence Every Day. Here now is Kim Meter. The more I learn about who my God is, the more I recognize how much there is no word in any language that can contain all that he is. We can't read the Gospels or the Book of Acts and not acknowledge our God is wild and uncontainable by any stretch of anything we can fathom. And he's calling each one who calls themselves by his beautiful name to trust him more than our logic, more than our experiences, more than what we know, more than what we feel, more than our education, and jump into the presence that is Him, and trust Him more than what we know, and follow Him into the miraculous. The same God that operated and was alive and working through the Gospels and the Book of Acts is the same God and the same Holy Spirit alive in believers today John 4, 23 and 24 says that God is spirit, and he's looking for anybody, anybody who will worship him in spirit, follow him, and in truth, by following his book, and those two are always together, following the leadership of the Holy Spirit and knowing his word. And those are the people he's going to pour himself through in crazy, miraculous, unexplainable ways. He's looking for anyone. I am learning to trust in Him for everything. Bob, I've lived so much of my life before Christ, and I say this to my shame, I've lived so much of my life before Christ on autopilot. I know how to buy groceries, I know how to get gas, I know how to buy coffee, and I I have failed to ask Him into my present situation. And 
and I've just I've kind of led the way, and I've inadvertently by doing so, I've made God follow me, and that's never been His plan. I'm learning how to be present in His presence in everything that I do, and understanding fully that I carry every single believer who calls Jesus Christ their Lord carries the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of heaven in their being. We are vessels that carry the Holy Spirit into every environment we enter, outdoors, indoors, every human encounter, every physical encounter. We have Him in us. Are we willing to release Him and His purpose and His power and His love into our environments? And when we do, we will see everything change right before our eyes. It's what he's calling each of us to do. There are four things that the enemy has no power against. The name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, worship of God, and the word of God. And when we stand up in warfare with those four weapons, the enemy, there's no fight. He has no power against the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, worship of God, and the word of God. And just like that, a little girl was redeemed. We put her on a bus. She called her grandmother, the only believer in her family, her grandmother. God bless all you grandparents who are listening. Her grandmother was the only believer in the family. She had been praying for her granddaughter for years. And on this day, there was this beautiful reunion. And Grandma, I'm coming home. I know Jesus now, and I'm coming home. And we sent her home to be with her grandma, a new life redeemed by the loving name of Jesus, by the power of his blood, by the word of God and worship of God. These are the weapons of war that every believer who calls Jesus Christ their Savior has within them. Listeners, it's time for us to stand up and use them. You pray, you listen. And you do what he tells you to do. Kim Meter here on The Intersection. You can find out more through crystalpeaksyouthranch.org. This is The Intersection podcast with filmmaker Andy Irwin, who discussed the movie I Can Only Imagine, depicting the story of Mercy Me lead singer Bart Millard, his relationship with his father, and the composing of that classic Christian song. The film is now available on home video. Here now is Andy Irwin. It's been an amazing Right. Uh, you know, we we fell in love with the story, Bart's story and the story behind the song that we all love, and this beautiful father-son redemption story. We knew it was powerful, but we just didn't know uh, how much it was going to connect with people or what level. And so uh, we expected a fraction of what it's done. And it just, I think it really, the thing that I took away is it really proves that, um, that our audience, the faith audience and Christians in general, have a really powerful voice. Uh, that's really underestimated a lot of times. It's underserved. And uh, when you connect with something that really connects with an audience that this, is this loyal, that they, they just really show up when the, when, the, when the film speaks to them. And so when opening weekend was coming around uh, back in March, uh, you know, the, the, the trade magazines were all um, predicting that we would do two to four million opening weekend, which would have been very difficult to overcome. 
and uh, we just felt like it was going to do more, and we had prayed that God would do something special. But special for us was that it would do 7 to 10 million opening weekend, and it would have a really solid run uh, and really find its audience. But we never in our wildest imaginations uh, uh, thought that it could do 17.1 million opening weekend uh, and then hold uh, and do 14 million the second weekend. It was just um, a surreal experience that really blew us all away. And I think the audience let their voice be heard. And as a result, um, uh, like Dennis Quaid said, Hollywood didn't know what hit, what hit them. And so it's been an exciting journey to be on. Well, for those that may have seen the film or those that may not have seen, I can only imagine, of course, it's about to be available on those DVD and Blu-ray platforms already available for, for digital Tell me about the compelling elements of this story. Obviously, as you mentioned, it's a father-son story. It's also, as the title suggests, it's a story about a a song that has impacted so many people. So tell me what you saw as really the the high points, the compelling points of that story. You know, for us, um, you know, uh, as we kind of approached the story and it was brought to our attention, um, you know, ultimately, the first thing that brings you to the table is is this is the best-selling Christian song of all time. And so uh, it sold millions and millions of copies, has fans all around the world. And so uh, for a song that's that special to people, you know, the first question we asked Bart when we approached it is, what does the song deliver? What do people really take away from the song? And he said, unquestionably, it's a rush of, it's a rush of hope. And uh, he said that hope, when you need it, the most it's it's the hope of what comes next and, and what is heaven like and um so we knew that that was kind of the feeling we wanted to end with in the story was to have that rush of hope just amplified uh, on the big screen but then as we dug into it and tried to understand where bart's hope came from he really explained that it was the change he saw in his father he said he saw his dad go from being an abusive monster that really abused bart the majority of his life to when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, in the latter years of his life, uh, he said, I watched Jesus change my dad from a monster to the man I always hoped he'd be, my best friend. And he said, if God can change, uh, if the gospel can change uh, that dude, the gospel can change anybody. And so Dennis Quaid plays the father and in a beautiful performance. Uh, and it's just a powerful redemption story that leads to Bart uh, then writing a song about his dad in heaven that has touched millions of people, and it's just a beautiful story. Andy Irwin here on The Intersection. Learn more about the film by going to ICanOnlyImagine.com. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through the website MeetingHouseOnline.info. There is a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection is also available through the Faith Radio app. You can find out about downloading it through faithradio.org. Also, at the Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org.
Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's the founder and CEO of Counterculture Mom, Tina Marie Griffin, equipping parents with not only information but direction in responding biblically to culture. In our recent conversation, she addressed a number of developments and trends in the culture. Here now is Tina Marie Griffin. There's a bunch of positive to uh, come out there and, and share. And I just want to say the positive things that I'm really getting that makes me keep doing what I'm doing, even though it's getting worse and worse for our entertainment choices today and, and what is happening with our kids with gender confusion and gender identity issues and all the rest, is that when we allow God to work through us and give us clarity on what we want in our homes, what we don't, what we want in our children's minds and what we don't, and basing their life on the Word of God, amazing things happen. Because kids, when they are lied to and they see the deception for what it is and they know the truth is in Christ, they are on fire. I have gotten emails over the last couple of months of kids starting Christian uh, Bible-believing youth groups at their schools, starting rallies at their schools, um, bringing Bibles to schools, bringing their friends over to watch. I have Christian movie nights where it's positive movies that people are watching, like I can only imagine. Um, And so all of these positive movie nights that we can have with our kids, and especially now summer with people traveling, get positive entertainment, plug it into the DVD players if you do watch, you know, let your kids watch for a couple hours. And then have great conversations. There's um, Ted Bear, he is the founder of MovieGuide.org. He just came out with a brand new book, a great uh, devotional, a movie devotional where he has hundreds of movies listed in this devotional. After the, the parents and kids watch it together or just the kids watch it, they know it's clean already because he goes through all the movies ahead of time and rates them and only puts the positive in, in, this, in this devotional. He has great 10-minute follow-up conversations for you to have with your kids. I'm getting great feedback from that when parents are actually ingesting uh, this type of book with their kids because, because all these conversations can now be had with life-changing uh, issues that the kids might be going through or just how they want to give back to our in our country today and make a, have a positive change. Other positive things going on as far as media-wise, I was a Miss America pageant contestant years ago, and they went from a one-piece bathing suit for health purposes, making sure that you're healthy and can handle the role of Miss America if you should get it, to then a two-piece. And I was bummed out because, really, I don't want uh, beauty to surpass brains in what Miss America's mission even is. Thankfully, that was just reversed this fall. They no longer will have any swimsuit competition, which I think is fantastic because then it focuses on the young women, their passion and mission, and what their platform is for what they want to see change in our country. Hopefully that changes for the better. Once again, too, we want to make sure that we're um, supporting the contestants that line up with the word of God. So I'll just say that that's a positive thing that young girls are saying, Hey, it's not about how much flesh you show and skin you show. It's what you have on the inside and how you're honoring God with the talents God gave you to make a difference. Another positive thing that happened, even though it was horrific, but it caused awareness. And this is why power of parents when we band together, amazing things happen. There was a a game that was going to be recently released through Steam, one of the top online gaming locations for people to play these online games and purchase them on Steam. It's called Active Shooter. It was going to come out June 6th. Everybody was in an uproar. A bunch of mom bloggers, dad bloggers, people in the media, once they heard about this, were up in arms because Active Shooter was all about allowing the gamer to literally about being a school shooter and killing as many classmates and teachers as possible. More points, you get, more people you kill, the more points you got. I can't imagine being a teacher today knowing these video games are even uh, allowed to be played and available for students. It's just training them how to kill. Good news is 
This got blocked the day it was supposed to be released, which is amazing news because now this game is not going to be in any gamer's hands. The bummer is if this was blocked and we don't keep speaking up and are aware of what's going on, I can guarantee you another game just like this will be right around the corner for sale and purchase if we don't be diligent and speak up and say, no way is this should this be allowed for our kids. Um, so the cool thing is God's on our side and will use us if we're open, available, honest, and knowledgeable about what's going on. Tina Marie Griffin here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website counterculturemom.com. This is The Intersection Podcast with Meg Miller, author of the book Benefit of the Debt, How My Husband's Porn Problem Saved Our Marriage. In our conversation, she shared about her husband's struggle with pornography, how she was affected, and principles consistent with scripture that she discovered to help her experience healing. Here now is Meg Miller. It's very common. As I explain it, uh, people will you know, realize they're living through the same thing or they know someone who has. It's very common. Um, when this kind of thing is exposed in the home and a husband confesses to wayward behavior, contacting other people, affairs, pornography addiction, this kind of thing, um, there's always a, a just a just a scenario that plays out over and over. He senses a, a feeling of relief and freedom and openness and hope. He's so excited to, that now we can move forward. You know, now we can deal with this. And for the wife, there's none of that. There's nothing like hope or relief. It's it's scary and it's angering. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. And so um, the conflicting experiences add to the drama. You know, it adds to the problem and um, just adds fuel to the fire of the of the conflict. And so we had that experiences. And, and just like that, just like other people, we had a similar experience where he was repentant and he wanted to get help. And so he started going to counseling. I started going to counseling and um, he seemed to improve. I didn't. For some reason, I had... Um, I was tempted to just get bitter. I was repulsed by him. I didn't know what to do with these feelings. It didn't make sense because I saw other, a few other women would bounce back, but most of us women uh, kind of sink in. Either we walk with a limp, like a relational limp for the rest of our lives, or um, suspicion, you know, or we always mm -hmm. waiting for the next revelation in our home or something. So it's just a sad situation. And uh, one day something crazy happened and um, I am now completely delivered of all those feelings. I don't feel repulsed by my husband. I don't feel scared of the next revelation. I don't feel angry that he did it. I'm not confused at all anymore. And, and the Lord gave me a, a crazy clarity that I really wanted to write down and share with others. <laughs> you, as you said, you were not feeling the same emotions. You were deeply hurt. What did God do in your heart, or what did God show you that really enabled you to— to walk in a in a manner of freedom. Yeah, that's that's the question, right? <laughs> and it's what every woman wants. I don't want to cope. I don't want encouragement. I don't want comfort. You know, a cup of tea is not going to fix this. And so it had to be a supernatural revelation, just a nugget of information I had missed before. I had no idea. There's one pivotal thing, very small, but it made the world of difference. And it was well, it was the size of my own sin, actually. So uh, I had no idea what a um, sinner I was before this. And so um, that when you have been forgiven much, the Lord said, Jesus says that you will also love much. And so that's what's in my heart now. Now, what I'm not saying is that I realized I caused my husband to struggle. No, no, no. I don't, a man cannot be caused 
to sin. Uh, he can do that all on his own. He, he needs no help from me. But um, so a woman has no ability to make a man sin. He has everything he needs to succeed and no, no reason. There's no reason a woman should believe she caused a, a man to sin. However, the realization of my own sin is what exactly, exactly liberated me. I felt like the woman, you know, anointing Jesus' feet with her oil and tears, I was forgiven much and therefore I loved much. So you discovered really the capacity to love in the love of Christ as a result of what God had shown you there. Right, which is completely different, right? Mm. Um, My own innocence made me angry. Like when I thought, I did nothing wrong, I deserve better than this. That kept me bitter. Those beliefs kept me bitter. But when I realized I'm not the perfect person I thought I was, uh, then I I also realized... um, how good it is to be the sinner who is asking. I felt those same feelings of relief and hope and freedom because of the cross. You know, as soon as you're convicted, if if you have the knowledge of the cross right there in the same room with you that you've always had, you know, been taught as a child or um, known from even a free, even from a televangelist, if you know what the cross of Jesus is all about, then conviction is a gift. It's not a um, condemnation. Meg Miller here on The Intersection. Learn more at the website benefitofthedebt.com. Next, from the Family Research Council, it's Travis Weber, director of the FRC's Center for Religious Liberty. In our recent conversation, he talked about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in the case involving Baker Jack Phillips, who declined to provide a cake to celebrate a same-sex union. The court found 7-2 to in Phillips' favor. Here now is Travis Weber. Yeah, I think the most important point of the decision is that the Supreme Court has clearly told government actors whether um, a commission administrators, such as those at the lower level in this case, or state judges, federal judges, any government actor really, uh, clearly told them uh, that under the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, it is unacceptable, it is a violation of that constitutional protection to specifically target religion, to marginalize religion, to treat religion as less than equal on the plane of uh, considerations and ideas when it comes to the, uh, the, the, the assessment of rights in the public square. The court, throughout its opinion, uh, featured language such as this, majority opinion, seven, with seven votes in agreement on that, that opinion, that ruling. Um, the court featured a lot of language along on this theme, um, pointing out that you cannot have animus against religion, you cannot denigrate religious beliefs, you cannot um, exclude them from a reasonable consideration. Justice Kennedy, in, in penning the majority opinion, said uh, to describe a man's faith as one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use is to disparage his religion in at least two distinct ways, by describing it as despicable and also by characterizing it as merely rhetorical, something unsubstantial and even insincere. So this is important because so much of what we hear in the culture is that religion is just an excuse for discrimination, excuse for something else. It's an excuse to, to do what you want. Uh, it's not taken seriously, and, and this will directly impact this aspect in terms of government actors, and I think it sends a message to the culture that this is unacceptable. So this point is very significant when we look at the masterpiece ruling. Where does the ruling fall short, and where is there work to be done now? Yeah, so so it really fails to grapple with the free speech claim. It doesn't rule on it. 
going into oral argument, many people thought the free speech claim was the more prominent claim brought by Jack Phillips, basically saying that, look, you're compelling me to speak against my conscience by forcing me to create a cake that I don't want to create. Uh, there is a strong doctrine of, com of pro prohibiting compelled speech under the First Amendment free speech protections. Um, the court didn't rule on this, though. I think you know there's a there's a case to be made that that Jack Phillips is forced to create expression against his conscience here. Uh, but the court didn't rule on this. This is going to continue to come up. Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion, made note of strong free speech protections which apply to situations like this. I thought it was interesting and, and good that Justice Thomas, in that opinion, pointed to the Hurley case from the 90s in which the Supreme Court unanimously said that the compelled speech doctrine protects a parade organizer who doesn't want to include a message in his parade, one entity in his parade against the parade's theme. In this case, it was a pro-LGBT parade float that would have contradicted the message of the parade. So this is analogous somewhat to this case, and, and um, glad to see Justice Thomas point this out as instructive to these types of matters going forward. Obviously, it didn't apply in this case, but the free speech, compelled speech issue is going to have to be dealt with. I think secondarily, although the court ruled for free exercise for Jack Phillips here, it did so in a way which said, look, in this case, free exercise was violated. It didn't really broadly change free exercise doctrine. So it clarified some lines and solidified some things. But the current free exercise laws on the books, which are a lower standard than the RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and statute, those can still come into play and, and result in religious freedom rulings against people in situations like Jack's. Um, I think, you know, the court's clarification on prohibiting religious animus, religious hostility that I commented on earlier today, really, it's applicable legally, but it's more significantly perhaps applicable culturally to the cultural conversation, really slapping down um, uh, expression like we saw from Senators Feinstein and Sanders when nominees Russell Vaught and Amy Barrett were put up uh, for nomination and questioned in the Senate and their religious beliefs targeted. That type of thing the court is saying, look, it's unacceptable here at the hands of government actors. And I think this really applies and flows out to, to broader society. So the ruling is applicable and significant in some ways, but there are some areas it, it doesn't address, and those are going to have to be addressed going forward. Travis Weber here on The Intersection. Find out more at the website frc.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's novelist Rachel Linden. She discussed her book, Becoming the Talbot Sisters which follows the stories of twin sisters estranged from one another, trying to rebuild their relationship, and who have faced difficult challenges in their lives. She has also been involved in international ministry and fighting human trafficking. This is Rachel Linden now. Well, my husband and I were living in Europe, and we were living in, we were living in England, actually, and we were uh, doing a lot of work throughout Europe. We were teaching a lot of sort of college-age classes uh, for college students who were doing internships around the world. And we began to realize that a lot of things were going on underneath the surface with people that weren't talked about. And it was a lot about relational brokenness, about sexual dysfunction, about abuse in people's past. And especially for women, a lot of times they had never told anyone about it. And because we were teaching on things like relational health and wholeness, intimacy with God, they began to talk with us about these things, specifically with me. And I realized there was a huge need and really felt like God put me in a position where I could meet a need that was tremendously important in people's lives. 
Well, and we're going to be talking about some of the the various needs, examples of brokenness that you just referred to earlier. But you've you've read this book called Becoming the Talbot Sisters. Tell me just a bit about what inspired it. A lot of it was inspired by my personal experiences living in Central Europe. We we lived in Budapest for five years and worked all over Central Europe in the post-communist world. And it's an amazing region and a region that's very undiscovered, but is just a very rich, fascinating region with a lot of history, a lot of conflict, a lot of problems, but also a lot of beauty. And so I wanted to write a book based in that region, but I also wanted to write a book that had strong themes about women being brave, being courageous in the face of great difficulty. So the book has themes about infertility, about miscarriage, and about uh, sex trafficking and exploitation, but all from this theme of women standing up against challenges and being brave despite life's difficulties. And what's interesting, I know that I've talked with fiction writers in the past, and they discuss how effective it can be to actually cover some well, difficult issues in the form of a story rather than do a nonfiction book, which I'm sure you could have chosen to go in that direction, but you chose to do fiction. You chose to, to write a novel. What were some of the things going through your mind with respect to actually making this into a fiction story? I think I love story. I love fiction because people really relate on an emotional level. And when you can engage readers empathetically, they are willing to go along with you on a journey. And they want to see what happens to the characters, how the characters change. And so I have wanted for years to write a book about uh, about trafficking, but I wanted to do it from a very relational, women-centered angle. I wanted to not re-exploit women or sensationalize the things that they go through, the trauma they go through. I really wanted to just say, hey, these are women, just normal women like I am, and they're in very difficult situations, and this is how it happens, and here's how we can help. And I wanted to do it in a fictional way so that uh, readers were really entering into the story with these women, uh, with with the main character, Charlie, who is helping the women. Um, I wanted them to be able to engage on an emotional level where you might not engage as much with a nonfiction book. With a fiction book, you can be right along there inside the story, feeling with the characters and experiencing with them. How do you see that that silence really can be an enemy that that steals the healing that God wants to bring about in a, a person's life in dealing with his or her brokenness? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, there's there's a saying in counseling circles: "We're only as sick as our secrets." And I think I really like to explore that in books. I like to talk about the difference between isolation and connection, difference between silence and opening up and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable with someone else to be known and to know. And so silence, I think, um, can be very destructive. It can keep us from connecting with one another. And I'm not talking about just silence in prayer or silence in going for a walk. I'm talking about silence, a relational silence in not, in not opening up and not allowing ourselves to be vulnerable relationally. And so um, this story really is about these two characters going from silence, going from the sickness of keeping these secrets that have isolated them and kept them apart and sharing and going, bringing things into the light so that they can find healing and they can find restored relationships. Rachel Linden here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website, rachellinden, L-I-N-D-E-N.com. 
Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address again is meetinghouseonline.info. You can also find the Intersection Podcast in the programming section at faithradio.org. It's also available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you visit that website. When you go to the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.